podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Writing is a healing act. Keeping a journal or writing in a diary for self-expression is a worthy pursuit in and of itself. But sometimes you might want to share your story so that others who are going through a similar circumstance can benefit from the lessons you've learned. If you are a person who wants to impact the world through the telling of your story, listen to this episode. There are ways to write your memoir that will encourage sales, and there are ways that will lead to no sales at all. It is all in the right telling of your story. In this episode, Randy Pizer will discuss a simple format for writing your story in a way that will encourage readers to find your book so that they can become inspired. Randy Pizer is a speaker, book editor, and ghostwriter who pitches manuscripts to literary agents and publishers. Published clients have been featured in Oprah Magazine, Time Magazine, on the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestseller lists, on Daily Mail, TV, and airport bookstores, and more. Randy also places books in five-star luxury hotels for word-of-mouth marketing. She is the author of the Write a Book program, Crappy to Happy, as featured in the movie Eat, Pray, Love, and The Power of Miracle Thinking. Here is the interview with Randy Pizer. In your own words, who is Randy Pizer? Um, I'd say I'm many different things to different people, but one of the things that I'm known for is practicing what I call random acts of chutzpah. Mm-hmm. And chutzpah is a nice Jewish word <laughs> that kind of means like having guts, really mm-hmm. like nerve. Some people see it as a negative, but I use it in very fun ways. For example, years ago, my dream was to become a published author. And I wound up standing off the freeway in Mill Valley, California, on a one Wednesday at rush hours, rush hour, holding a giant sign that read author seeks publisher. That was my first random wow. act of chutzpah. 
And, you know, um, they say, be careful what you ask for, because you just might get it. Well, (laughs) a publisher called me that evening and I wound up becoming editor in chief of his national magazine. So I say, you know, be careful what you ask for, because my sign read author seeks publisher. It did not read author seeks publisher for her book. So you've got to be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're not specific enough, right? (laughs) Right. So um, I'll say in the professional world, what I do is I help people get book deals with publishers. So my company, we ghostwrite books, we edit books. I fly to New York. I sit with top agents like Angelina Jolie's agents and many others. And I sit with top publishers and I get people, primarily first time authors, book deals with publishers. Sounds great. Um, would you say that the chutzpah is the same as having courage? Uh, yes, it is, <laughs> because it certainly takes courage to have chutzpah. <laughs> right, right. Thank you. Um, what is your healing personal story, Randy? Um, you know how, I'm wondering if you've ever heard the term, the dark night of the soul. Yes. You know, a lot of people have heard that term. It's it's kind of like when everything, all the crises in your life multiply faster than rabbits. And that was happening to my life in the early 90s. I had been editor-in-chief of a Bay Area, very large Bay Area New Age magazine, when you could say the word New Age and people didn't roll their eyeballs in disgust. And mm-hmm. so it was a time I was very, very proud. I had this identity in the Bay Area as a major voice for consciousness in the Bay Area in the early 90s when the New Age is hot and happening. And all of a sudden, the magazine gets gets sold. I find myself out of a job, you know, and my whole identity is tied to that, to that position as editor-in-chief and my pride and everything else. And all of a sudden, uh, my relationship ends. Uh, someone I had worked on a special project for committed suicide when he couldn't couldn't manifest his dream in the timeline that he wanted. And mm-hmm. I wound up being in this dark night of the soul. Now, right. I like some truth in advertising here because is it true that the dark night of the soul is just one night? No, <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. the dark year and a half of the soul. Mm-hmm. So there I was right. in this experience of having mm. lost all the, you know, the the various anchors in my life, you know, my job, my relationship, um, a dear friend who had committed suicide. And here I was just devastated and not knowing, you know, how can I heal from this? What do I need to do? And I started living by the answer to just one question that I asked myself many times a day every single day. And it's a question that came from a very dear friend of mine. She calls it her crisis question. And her name is Deborah LaForest. And so what Deborah said to me, she said, what is the most loving thing I can do for me right now? Mm. So I started asking myself that question all day long. Here I am. I'm just, you know, crying. I'm lost. I'm in despair. And I'm saying, what's the most loving thing I can do for me right now? And I listened to the answer to that. So I'd hear, go for a walk, cry, do the Mm -hmm. dishes, go back to bed. Whatever it was, I kept living by that response until one day I heard, sit, do nothing. So Mm -hmm. I sat and did nothing. And while I'm sitting and doing nothing, I asked myself, what's the most loving thing I can do for me right now? And all I heard over and over again is sit do nothing. So I decided, 
maybe I'll light some candles because that's still sitting and doing nothing. <laughs> and so <laughs> my my parents, uh, my parents, my father in particular, always gave to all these charities and in Israel. So he was like, he was swarmed with Hanukkah candles. And so he had sent me a ton of Hanukkah candles. So I put them in a menorah and I would light eight a day and I would just sit there until the candles burned down, which I'll tell you was an hour and 20 minutes. And that's a long mm. time to just sit and do nothing. Right. But after a couple of weeks, I felt like I had gotten so quiet inside that I could hear the silence of a flame. I was that, that quiet. And then I started to just think about different experiences from my life. And I decided to start writing them down. And I had, you know, at this time in the early 90s, the big thing, the big computer then was the Mac Jr. Classic. I mean, it was this like teeny tiny little screen. But I wrote this story from my life. And I just started thinking about all these different stories from my life. And I started writing them. I was not intending to write a book. But after about a month, I had about 100 pages of all these different stories from different aspects of my life. And I started looking at that and saying, I think I have a book. But if I have a book, what book is it? And I realized all of my stories had something to do where I had been a victim of some sort, had gone through some crappy experience, and really transformed it. It came out more empowered as a result. And so I wound up creating a book called Crappy to Happy, Small Steps to Big Happiness Now. Then I started pitching that book to publishers and eventually got a book deal. And my life completely took this new direction where, you know, I I started helping other people with their books. And now over the years, I'm helping people get six-figure book deals. And I've helped many people get very strong book deals. And I'm well-regarded in the publishing industry. But it was from the place of the dark night of the soul that, that all of this emerged because I was willing to do the deep work that it took to get here. Right. Wow. Yeah. This is a very interesting question about asking ourselves the one loving thing that we can do for ourselves right now or things. So that triggered me um, to ask you another question. What is your definition of love? Wow. Wow. I've probably given over 300 talks to organizations and, and or, or interviews. No one has ever asked me that question. So is love a person or is it a state of being? Right. You know, uh, for me, it's, it's a feeling in the heart. And how we define love... Can, can always be in context. Sometimes I cry tears, but they're not tears of sorrow, they're tears of love. So for example, mm. my mother passed two years ago. When I think of her and tears come up, they're not tears of suffering or sorrow, they're tears of love. So wow, I like that. Yeah, um, as you know, each for each person is such an individual experience. Right. But it really is a state of being. Mm. And it's hard to define, isn't it, Randy? Yes, yes. To put into words, yeah, it's really hard. Um, some One of my guests, he said, it's love is being grateful for and 
appreciative of. I, the gratitude part and appreciation too um, really kind of touched me. I, I thought about it and I'm like, yeah, you know, love could be very much um, the feeling of gratitude. Just being grateful for what's happening now or as we are now, like without any change, not wanting to change anything, just accepting the moment in ourselves. Yes. Uh, right? I think it has a lot to do with acceptance, which is extremely powerful um, for healing. And you, you know what's interesting in terms of relationships? You know, where love gets entangled so many times. Mm-hmm. And I've learned for myself, if I'm feeling like um, I need, I need love, I need more, it means I'm not asking myself, what can I give? I'm really in the mode of what can I get? And love, when it's really, really free, gives freely of itself without expectation. I can't say I'm always there, at least in terms of relationship, but I certainly aspire to be there. Yeah, right. Also, when you mentioned um, sitting, the thought that came to you and asked you to sit, I thought about meditation. Well, that was the same, the same experience as meditating? It, it was when I was sitting there, you know, at that time, again, that was in the early 90s. You know, I find now my brain is so busy that it's hard for me to access those like, you know, the theta state of brain waves where you go into more creativity or the, you know, those deeper meditative states. I can't quite get there. So I actually have a very, very funny meditation that I do. Mm-hmm. And when people hear this, it just cracks them up. Uh, so <laughs> I was working on a vision board, you know, in, in January, you know, where you're kind of planning out your year and I'm creating my treasure map of what I'd like to create in it. And I, I love animals. And, and I had some images of, of some little dogs. And I was actually attending someone's guided visualization, meditation, but my mind completely drifted off what the man was saying. And I found myself wandering in my own thoughts and mind. And I thought about that vision board and the little dogs on it. And this is where my mind went. I said to myself, (laughs) if I had three dogs, I'd name them Oscar, Meyer, and Wiener. And Mm. that cracked me up, you know, and so I started doing the Oscar Mayer Wiener meditation Uh because it brings me such hysterical laughter and joy to even think about Oscar Mayer and Wiener as names for dogs. And if I had dogs like that, people would just delight in hearing that. It would make them laugh. And of course, when we're laughing, are we lightening up our energy? You know, absolutely. Right. Oh, no doubt. So sometimes now, you know, I start thinking about like, you know, people do sacred chants and different, um, you know, all different kinds of Sanskrit chants or Buddhist or whatever, or Hindu. And and I do my Oscar Mayer wiener and it just cracks (laughs) me up and it it brings more joy and delight, you know, and that's really what, you know, what we should aspire to do for ourselves is to bring in more joy and delight. Yeah, I like that. That's funny that you said that because, um, Today I was talking to someone on the phone and then his name is Billy. It's one of my guests. And it made the name Billy, it makes me happy. I don't know why. Like Amelia, it just brings joy to my heart. And I don't, yes. that's so funny. I don't know why it's certain names 
<laughs> I think it's really good. You know, people get so uptight about little things or they find themselves apologizing for all kinds of things. Like I was in a I was in a grocery line and there was a problem with the with the cash register and the the clerk was so flustered and there was a long line of people and some of them looked angry and I just said to her, I said to the cashier, I said, you know, appendicitis is urgent. Waiting another three minutes, not so much. And, you know, I I look at life like that, like what really are the priorities? You know, um, where do I need to be like, you know, stronger? What triggers me? What doesn't? Because we all have things that trigger us or that don't. And they're different for every single person. So I really encourage people to look at you know, is is it as urgent as appendicitis or can you really just let this one go? <laughs> right, right. Good point. So true, Randy. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's another mystery, right? Why so many people are um, <laughs> attached or not aware of the power of uh, positivity, just looking for things that are positive experience, exploring them more, having more of these experiences uh, throughout the day. I connect um, positive experiences to enjoyment, like gratitude, enjoyment, they are connected to me too. And combining those two, it kind of uh, transforms into this uh, positive way of living. And the more we have those moments, the better it is to treat even trauma. Um, That leads me to my next uh, question to you. Why do you think writing is a healing method? Well, you know, a lot of people already understand the power of journaling because writing is cathartic because you can express anything you want. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to publish everything you write. And um, I also, for many years, kept a file in a filing cabinet called Healing. And any situation that I found myself in that wasn't resolved, there was still, you know, <laughs> tentacles of stress or anger or disappointment or sadness or whatever, resentment, I would put that situation, I would write it out and put it in the healing file and forget about it. Just let it be. You know, some people might, you know, uh, choose to put those kinds of letters up in smoke and, you know, let them go out to the universe with a prayer, whatever. But that was what I did. Yeah, let me see if I can ask a more specific question about writing. What is that about writing that makes us connect deeper with our own feelings and emotions, our own selves? In order to write, you have to listen. You have to be tuned in. Right. You know, um, Mm. like boomers in particular like quiet. They like total quiet space and no distractions. Millennials and some of the uh, younger generations you know, they're going to do their writing in a cafe. That's where they feel vital. But wherever somebody chooses to write, it's really about an inner listening process. I like that. Where where does our creativity come from? You know, it has to come from some form of inner listening. Right. So that's kind of a reconnecting or connecting ourselves to our own selves, the depth of our own hearts, our own souls, um, if we may call that. Yes. Yes. And then there's what I would call safe writing and what I would call risking writing or risk writing. And Mm -hmm. safe writing is if you're afraid that somebody might see your writing. So you censor what you're really feeling or what you really want to write. And then there's the risking writing where you just kind of spill your guts. Mm -hmm. And um, like when I was writing my first book, Crappy to Happy, 
after I wrote all the stories, I went through each story one at a time and realized, oh, yeah, this goes in the book. No, this one was just for my own personal catharsis. It doesn't need to be read by anyone else. And so then, you know, you can discern, you know, who, who are you writing for? It's perfectly lovely to write for other people. I mean, a lot of people like to share their memoir and their writing so that they can inspire someone else to overcome something that they've been through in their life experience. A lot of people choose to write memoir just for that reason. Mm, right. Let's get to those questions about memoir writing. What is a healing memoir? My first question. And the second one is, why is it important to write a memoir? Okay, so um, I can only take questions one at a time because that's how my brain processes information. (laughs) So so I'll ask you to repeat this, the second question later on. So what is a healing memoir? Um, If you're writing a book for yourself just to heal some trauma or some experience you've been through in your life, that's healing in and of itself, just to get the expression of it, because you are going to empower yourself in the writing process. It just happens that way. The more you can get out of your head and onto paper, the less you have to carry around in your head. And it really, really helps you to heal to write it. One of the important questions to ask when you're writing a memoir, and I call it Is it all about me or are you answering a question in a reader's mind? What's in it for me? And those are two separate kinds of books. And it's fine either way. I'm not placing judgment. But if it's all about me, you are writing for your own healing experience, but not necessarily to have um, to inspire a reader. If you're answering a question in the reader's mind, which is what's in it for me, then you actually have to put that, you have to delineate that in your writing. So you're actually addressing the reader and not so much I, 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 me, me, me. So there, you know, there's two different ways to write those kinds of books. But the truth is, you know how busy you are in your life and we all are super busy. So if you're writing a memoir because you actually want to sell a book and have readers read it and inspire other people, you must answer the question in the reader's mind, what's in it for me? Mm. May I give you an example? Yeah. So when I wrote Crappy to Happy, this was my original title, From Crappy to Happy, A Journey Out of the Pits and Into the Fruit of Life. Mm. And I thought, oh, gee, that's witty. The publishers are going to love that. (laughs) So when that book got sold, they took off the from and it became Crappy to Happy, Now listen to the subtitle they put on the book, Small Steps to Big Happiness Now, because that answered the question in the reader's mind, what's in it for me? You must answer that question if you want to inspire other people and actually have them buy your book. So your subtitle, think about an outcome that a reader will get. Because what's happening in the publishing industry now, and I'm seeing this consistently among the nonfiction publishers in all genres, including memoir, they're all saying we are looking for outcome-driven titles and outcome-driven content. And if you can answer a question, which is what's in it for me from the reader's perspective, you're offering an outcome. It makes sense. A lot of sense. Yep. And I'm hearing it all over the place from all the publishers. Right. 
it's the big buzzword now. <laughs> um, yeah, the reader needs to yeah, to understand what is what they will find in the book that will help them. And the quicker they do it, right, the better it is, right? Right. But what's the benefit? Yeah. Um, yeah. When I start writing my own book, I, I didn't write in the first person because it was really tough. So do you suggest that we write our books or memoirs about traumas in the third person in the beginning? So we distance ourselves a bit from the subject? I've actually never heard of anyone doing it like that. You know, I think whatever works for anyone is what works. The way I like to um, advise people is to start with what I call chunks of gold. And your chunks mm. of gold are just all of these like snapshots from your life, all different things that you might want to write about and making like, you know, a long, long list of, of different stories and events from your life. You know, it could just be like, titles of things. You don't have to be writing the whole thing and then just see, you know, which of those want to be part of the book. So that's one way. You know, I've discovered that I believe there are two kinds of brains when it comes to writing. There are linear people and there are process people. And I want to describe the differences. And they're both fine. It's just the way different brains work, the way different people operate. So linear people like to work with an outline. So they're going to create the title and all the chapter headers. And so they have an outline to work with and they're going to fill in the outline, basically writing from chapter to chapter. Yeah. And they're going to take it from A to Z. All the steps are mapped out. Process-oriented people will write about this, then they're going to write about something else, they're going to write about something else, and then they're going to write about something else. And then their mind, they'll write about wherever their mind takes them. And once they have a whole bunch of writing, they're going to figure out what the book is and put it together in its right order. And um, I'm more process-oriented. That's the way I work. Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever works for somebody. Um, one of the things that I do advise, though, because publishers in particular do not like a particular style of writing, which is to write in present tense. Um, so you should be writing in past tense. Oh, that's a good so, tip. So, for example, instead of saying, I see X, Y, Z, that would be present tense. You would say, mm. I saw X, Y, Z, past mm. tense. Why is that? They just don't like it. <laughs> I can't tell you more than that. Is there a reason? But, <laughs> a no, logical I mean, most, reason? <laughs> most books are written in, um, in, in past tense. So um, when I get in an author, you know, who has a book in present tense, you know, it might be harder to sell. I might not be even be able to sell it. It really depends, but it's it's much harder. Publishers just don't like it. Yeah, I'm wondering what the reason, um, what is the reason for that? I don't know. And, and may I share a couple of things for read, for uh, writers to watch out for in their writing? Absolutely. Okay. Be careful about pet phrases. And pet phrases are like when I'm, when I'm editing, let's say analyzing a book or editing it, all of a sudden I'll start seeing certain phrases or certain words that just repeat many, many times throughout a book. Mm -hmm. And I call that a pet phrase. So for example, I was working on a book this past year and the pet word was thus. Well, thus isn't even a word we use currently in, in most circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, right. I had another one, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's just like, oh my God, is there so much drama in your life, really? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that was the person's pet word. So watch out for your, for repetitive words. 
um, you know, I had one book where the woman was sick to her stomach in all different circumstances throughout her book. And I had to say, you know, do a find on the word vomit, puke, and stomach. And you've got to change out some mm-hmm. of this. Right. can't have it going up throughout the entire book. We just can't. You know, um, another thing to look yeah. out for are what are called weak words. So weak words are very short verbs such as has, got, went, get, make, did, do, have, are, be, things like that. It doesn't mean Mm. you can't use those words, but if you can substitute better language or vary the language more in your verbs without making it sound stilted, this is better. It's a better result. And so I'll give you an example. If you were going to say, he is a boxer, you know, you might say he provides boxing services. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm just making something up, but just something where there's a little bit more to it. Right. Or like, uh, here's a better one. What he does is, you know, I would say what he provides is. Right. What he yeah, offers. That sounds is. better. You know, just, yeah, just right. do it. You know, just watch out for those words. Another thing to really watch out for, and this this is a, like a really critical key that I'm telling people, the mm. words it and that. If you're oh, using tough. it as a, <laughs> as a noun or that as a noun, say what it stands for. Stay what that stands for rather than mm. just say it or that because you know your material really really well where readers don't and so it really helps them to actually hear what the real nouns are (laughs) right that's where um an editor a good editor right helps a lot yeah yeah we do that all the time yeah because editors will point out all these um all these issues yes yes Like, you know, usually when I'm working on a book, where we start is with an analysis. You know, we use the comments bar in Word and we're pointing out, like, you know, can you please say what it is or what that is if we're not clear what it is, you know, and and we're determining, you know, what are the strengths and where are the weaknesses that need to be strengthened so we can really help the author to create, you know, a stellar book. Oh, incredibly. No doubt about it, uh, Randy. Yes. What is the importance of writing a memoir? I think the importance, I think everyone has a voice and voices need to be heard. And I really think that's the bottom line. I would say more in this century or in this time period than any other time period in history, more, it seems like more people want to share their story. They want to make an impact in the world. And I think being able to make your personal impact, to impact the life life of one other human being, I mean, that's just a, a huge accomplishment to make in this lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, I oh, tell yes. people, don't worry about numbers. Not everybody has to be, you know, the million-dollar New York Times best-selling author. Mm-hmm, right. We're here to uplift all of humanity, and we do that one person at a time. Right. That's great. Yeah. What is the question you ask every author who comes to you with a memoir? <laughs> so the question really is, is it all about me, or are you answering the question in the reader's <laughs> mind, what's in it for me? I mean, that's really, really the key piece to getting a book sold if, if someone does want their book sold, you know, to readers or to publishers. 
Right. So in a way, you answered this yes, question before, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Edit, edit, edit this part. <laughs> so um, is there a format for writing a healing memoir? Yes, there is. Um, when you just write memoir, just straight, like store a story of your life, uh, you'll get a, you can probably get a certain amount of sales. But if you really want to get a lot more sales, this is the format that I use for my own personal books. And I love this format and I give it to you freely to use because this will help you sell a lot more books. My format that I do for my books are stories followed by steps. And the steps are either actions or insights that are based on that particular story. So I'll give you some examples. In mm -hmm. Crappy to Happy, following every story, there are four steps to happiness now based on that story. So I tell the story, but after the story, there are four steps. And that's, that's answering the question in the reader's mind, isn't it? What's in it for me? Right. I wrote yes. another book called The Power of Miracle Thinking. And I interviewed about 40 people and all different kinds of miracles that they had. Health and jobs and relationships and houses and escaping from fires, just all kinds of things. And I wanted to know what are the attitudes, thoughts, and beliefs they held and the actions they took that they feel might have contributed to their miracle happening. Mm. And so I have these short stories followed by three miracle thinking tips so that, again, we're answering the question in the reader's mind, what's in it for me? Right. You know, most people like to read short stories. Yeah. You know, these are empowering, really fun short stories. And then afterwards, oh, here's, you know, things they can reflect on, think about, you know, bring into their lives, integrate into their lives. And so I really encourage anyone writing a memoir, look at the theme of all of the different stories of your life and see, you know, what, what kind of tips or strategies do you want to put after each of your stories? What is the common theme that you to tie them all together? Because that will answer the question in the reader's mind, what's in it for me? And that can also tie into your subtitle of your book. And so I suggest if you use this form, format, stories followed by steps, make the steps about the same word length or sentence length. And like if you're having three steps after each story or four steps, four steps, just be consistent throughout. And that really adds a lot of polish to a book. Uh, another thing that I like to do is that I'll take one strong line from the story or the steps and I will pull it out. I mean, I'll, I'll still include it in the story or the steps, but I will also take it and I will put it on, a, on its own page prior to the story. So it, like if the story starts on the right-hand page, on the left-hand page, I have that powerful quote from the book. Right. And that's called a pull quote. So that's a really nice way to set up your book. Pull quote, story, steps. Right. Pull quote, story, steps. It's an easy, easy formula to follow. Can anyone write a memoir, Randy? Some people are more auditory. So I think, you know, I, I actually just got off the phone with a woman who told me she wrote her 300 something page memoir about 80 percent of it on her phone wow and so wow. i'm so i'm sure she spoke her entire you I, know 
book into a phone. Okay. You know, I encourage everyone to write whether everyone can get a publishing deal. You know, I can't say we would need to analyze and, you know, certainly working with, you know, an editorial firm such as mine or, you know, anyone that you work with, you know, they would bring your writing up to um, a publishing industry standard, you know, so or a professional standard, because, you know, even if you self-publish, you want your book to really shine because it is representing you. Right. Yeah. What do publishers look for? Publishers, you know, I, this is a very interesting question because I say there are two parts to a publishing conversation. So when people come to me and they've got their memoir or any book they've written and they really want me to get them an agent or literary agent or a publisher, I tell them there are two parts to the publishing journey. One part has to do with your content. So your content has to be strong and it has to be really stellar Mm -hmm. and differentiated from everything else that's out there. For example, I was at a conference recently where the CEO of the conference is my client. And it was a writing kind of of conference. And about 400 people in that were in that audience and about 395 of them were writing their abuse memoir. Mm-hmm. So so many people have been abused right. and everybody's story is important. Everybody's voice is important to be heard, but it doesn't mean that it necessarily can be sold. True. So there has to be something that really stands out in the story. For example, um, I sold a book that came out last year called Slave, A Human Trafficking Survivor Finds Life, about a little four-year-old boy who grew up in a, in a, as a child slave. Right. Very, very powerful story. It's actually under consideration for film with three major Hollywood movie producers. Mm -hmm. After I sold it to the publisher, the publisher pitched it to the movie producers. So, I mean, it's an outstanding story. So part of the conversation has to do with your content. And again, you have to be bringing something new to a conversation that's already happening. That's like the strongest kind of positioning. The other half of the publishing conversation has to do with something that I call the business of publishing, Mm -hmm. which isn't about your content so much as it is about your ability to promote your book. Because 20 years ago, not one agent or publisher ever asked me, Randy, what is the size of this person's social media following? How many Facebook followers do they have? Do they have a YouTube channel? Things like that. Nowadays, it's the first thing out of their mouths, provided they love your content. Mm. So what it takes to sell a book is that you must have eyeballs on you. I've had publishers who have come back and said, where has the author spoken in the last six months? What is the size of the audiences they've spoken to? Where are they speaking in the next six months? What are the projected sizes of the audiences they're speaking to? Are they doing trainings? Are they doing workshops? Are they doing podcasts? How visible are they? So it's a numbers game. It really is a numbers game. Mm -hmm. So even if you have the best content in the world, your next step is to build numbers because publishers will look you up. I was sitting with Angelina Jolie's uh, literary agent and I was pitching a project to him last year. 
in the middle of my pitch. I'm sitting with him in New York at the Javits Conference Center at the, the largest book expo in the country where I go every year. And here I am pitching all these books in this big publishing industry feeding frenzy. And I'm pitching this author and I think the pitch is going well. And the guy pulls out his phone in the middle of my pitch, mm-hmm. looks up the guy on YouTube and says, oh no, his numbers are too small. <laughs> wow. So when Wherever you are comfortable, like, you know, some people are Instagram people or Facebook people or LinkedIn people, wherever you want to make your mark, whether it's YouTube, whatever, do what's comfortable for you because that's the thing you're actually going to do. Right. (laughs) And build your numbers. And here's a trick. Here's a really, really good tip too. What you can also do, and this can help because I'm always looking to tip the sale in your favor leverage other people's lists as well, which means think about all the Mm -hmm. big mouth people you know everywhere who has a larger list than yours. Mm -hmm. When people work with me, I actually have a templated letter for them to send out to everyone they know asking for their support in the book launch. And we're actually able to leverage other people's numbers to help support the sale of their book. So all, all this goes into selling a book. Yeah. It's not called uh, the publishing business uh, for nothing, right? There's a reason for that. It's a business. Yeah. It's an industry with industry standards. And, you know, especially, you know, if I'm bringing a project to Penguin Random House or McGraw-Hill or Simon & Schuster or wherever I'm bringing it, we've got to have numbers in place. Coming to my last questions to you, and they will be about spirituality and uh, I call them wholesome questions, too. And the first one is, are you spiritual? Very. In fact, um, a TV host once said to me, Randy, you were born Jewish. Your (laughs) books are spiritually eclectic and you speak in churches. And and how do you account for all this? And what came out of my mouth that just popped out was, same God, different rapper. Mm -hmm, Right. So um, I have spoken for all different (laughs) kinds of denominations. I've also been editor-in-chief of a national mind, body, spirit magazine. I mean, you know, so I've interviewed all of, you know, the Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer and Carolyn Mace and Marianne Williamson and Neil Donald Walsh and Esther Hicks and on and on, you know, all the top spiritual authors. And, you know, that's that's how I live my life. And I I call it um, when I'm working with people. uh, Well, let me just tell you my intention that might come from place with everyone is I ask for divine right clients for whom I can create phenomenal results. So I come from a a very spiritually intended place. And I ask for the divine right publishers. I ask for the divine right alignment, whatever it is, whether it's the self-published, traditional published, or however I can help people. That's wonderful. I like that a lot. Do do you believe in God? Um, it's, It's very, very interesting because I've interviewed so many people who have had access to upper and higher realms. And so um, I don't know if I do or don't. And that's just the honest to God truth, no pun intended. I believe in some form of source, in some form of light that we're all connected and part of. Is it a male being or is it a a non-gendered being? Is it a being at all? Is it a light source? I have no idea. A better question would be, what is God to you? You just said it could be the universe, light, yeah, anything that's good and wholesome, right? Yes. What is another word for healing? 
another word for healing? Yes. Um, I would say feeling. Because you can't have healing without feeling. <laughs> without feeling. You know, one of, one of the things I wrote in Crappy to Happy years ago, it's my favorite statement se- sentence in there. Sorrow digs the well and joy fills it. It is my experience that people who are willing to do the deep work of grief, of actually feeling those feelings that nobody wants to feel. <sighs> but if you're willing to ride the waves, they will come, they will go, they will come, they will go, they will go, they will come. But you will find yourself at a peaceful shore and ultimately. And what happens in that process for myself, I found like through my dark night of the soul experience and going through all the grief I went through and walking in the mountains for a year and a half and and talking to God (laughs) and raging at God and screaming at God and demanding of God and all the things I did. It's just really, really interesting that I became a container in which I could hold so many more feelings. So I could hold sadness about one thing, but I had created such a deep well inside of myself where I could hold that much more joy. Mm. Sorrow digs the well and joy fills it. (laughs) And it's only the people who are willing to do the deep work of feeling that will ultimately have that larger capacity to feel that much more joy. I absolutely agree. Um, the problem is overcoming fear, feeling fear in order to to understand them. I think yeah, there's a lot of uh, to do with um, courage, like you said earlier in the beginning of the conversation, just facing our own fears. I have a story about that that's so powerful. Yeah. When I share it, you know, people are very very moved, and I'd love to share it with you if I yes, may. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay, so 19 years ago. I'm in New York at this big publishing industry feeding frenzy called Book Expo America. It's at the Jacob Javits Center, downtown New York. There's 40,000 people there and everybody has their agenda and everybody's looking for their right connection. Mm-hmm. I am a, te- a deer in the headlights. It's absolutely terrifying. I want my connection. I want to find a publisher for my first book, but I don't know anybody and everybody seems very well connected. And there I am in the middle of all this. People are rushing around and I feel incredibly afraid. Now, I'm there with my very dear friend, Jill Lublin, who is a national publicity strategist. So we're walking along. I'm a deer in the headlights. And all of a sudden, Jill goes, CNN. She's running after CNN to go make that connection. A little while later, she goes, USA Today. And she's off and running. So I wanted to keep up with her. So this is what I did. And listen to this, <gasps> CNN. And then I followed her, <gasps> USA Today. Uh, and I followed her and I realized I had what I call the hiccup of hesitation. And hic- the hiccup of hesitation is where we hold any fear whatsoever. We may really want something, but there's some fear that's in our way. We can feel that little hiccup in our step. Now, here I am, you know, surrounded by 40,000 people and my dear friend Jill running after CNN and USA Today. (laughs) And so I decided I wanted to overcome that fear, my fear, right then and there. And so this is how I did it. I decided I would physically model Jill on the show floor. So I'm walking along. All of a sudden, in the distance, I see Ladies Home Journal. Mm-hmm. And I no, no back step, no hiccup of hesitation. Boom. Right to that person. And I made that connection. I got that business card. 
And so what I tell people is wherever you feel those hiccups of hesitation in any aspect of your life, you may say to yourself, and this is what I say to myself, go, Mm -hmm. go, go. That's it. And you, you take out that hiccup of hesitation. You take the step forward with no hesitation. And so physically modeling my friend brought me to that place. When I speak, you know, live in person and I physically demonstrate that and you can't, you you won't even hear a pin drop in the room. Everyone holds fear. I don't care how famous they are. Everyone does. True. Just notice where you have those hiccups of hesitation. And if you are willing to allow yourself to take that step and go. Right. That takes awareness and then courage. I like that. Yeah. Working on those two areas. Or chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes around. Right. What do you appreciate and value most in life? I appreciate um, and value the people I, I love right. and the animals I love. Mm. <laughs> That's, yeah. And, I, and my heart is, is pretty wide and I love a lot of people. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, um, when, I, when I'm working with people, I always tell people, you know, a book isn't just a bunch of words on a page. It's your dream. Right. And I get to help you birth your dreams. And to me, you know, how fun and how <laughs> joyous is that? Yeah. You know, I rejoice in getting people book deals. This is my fun. Yeah. Spiritual fun. I like that. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. Meaningful. What does success mean to you, Randy? Every person who has thanked me with tears in their eyes for however I've helped them in any kind of way or capacity Mm. equals success. Mm. It's not a dollar figure, although dollars are fun. (laughs) (laughs) They're good too. eh? And appreciated. (laughs) But... But every single, just every acknowledgement of, and, and gratitude, yeah. you know, that, whew, that's amazing. Right. I uh, absolutely agree. What gives your life meaning? What gives my life meaning? Yes. Um, I love helping people and I love helping animals. So that, that really just gives my life meaning to help people make their impact in the world. Right. Do you believe in life after death? Um, very much so. In, in fact, um, I often receive messages from people who have died uh, to give to people. And, you know, it's not with information that I've known mm-hmm. and the information is confirmed. Um, I had an experience of, of helping my very loved mother through her death. I actually coached her through her death a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm by her side, just telling her, relax, it's okay, you can go, I love you, dad loves you, my brother Ted loves you. And um, I was visiting my brother and my dad in Atlanta um, a couple, last year, and I was in the back seat of the car, my brother was driving, my dad was in the front seat, my dad's 90, and they were in the front seat of the car, I'm in the back, and I decided, I'm gonna call my mother in, you know, it was the four of us, our family, We were all loving and close. And so I didn't say anything out loud. I'm just sitting in the back of the car and I called my mother in and I could feel the tears. And those are like I I mentioned earlier, the tears of love, not tears of sorrow. 
I'm sitting in the back seat, you know, and all of a sudden my brother in the front seat said, I feel mom. I've never felt her before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, those kinds of experiences are certainly confirmation of something beyond the physical. I've also gotten to, um, I've had the privilege of editing books that have taken my understanding and my awareness to to very different levels of um, experiences beyond the veil. So do you believe that this kind of life after death, it's a place that we go to when we die, or it's mind continuation, reincarnation, rebirth? Uh, It could be a combination thereof. (laughs) You know, I mean... I don't know. I mean, so many people have reported on various, you know, white halls and studying and, you know, and, and, and sacred temples. And, you know, I, I don't know. I had an experience one time. It's actually in my uh, uh, crappy to happy book. And I call it the not so near near death experience in which I'm having a dream. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm standing with some kind of guide in the air as though air is a perfectly great place to be. And I'm looking at all this beauty below me, just absolutely stunning beauty, nature everywhere. And I can see clouds. I see lights coming from various clouds and I'm aware that beings are working in those areas. Although there is no sound, it's just very pristine, crystalline and clear. And then I was hearing, I'm hearing, it's time to go back to your body. And I stayed conscious the entire process from that lucid dream experience, if it was a dream, into it's time to go back to your body, click, you're in your body, open your eyes. And I was conscious the entire time. So I call it the not so near near death experience. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> really interesting. Um Yeah. An experience that we can learn so much, right, about the mystery of life. Yes. Yes. What are three things about life you know for sure? Wow. that What a powerful question. Man, you can ask the questions. <laughs> These are great. Three things I know about life for sure. Yeah. One is that ultimately we are all headed towards love. Hmm. So I try to be that source of love in this lifetime. And if I have any kind of discord with anyone, it is my intention to bring it to at least neutral if I can't get all the way back to love. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I think that's like one of the most powerful, powerful things that I know about life. Yeah, Um, You know, I learned that through another beyond the veil experience where someone I had worked for in my early 20s who was a very... Uh, not nice person, uh, eventually died. And I worked on forgiving this man for seven years. And one day he appeared in a lucid experience in a dream state and he was at a blackboard. And I said, oh, he's teaching me something. And in that moment, I received a transmission of love like nothing I've ever felt on the earth. It was Mm -hmm. huge. And I realized this being, this man was making his amends to me from beyond the veil. And I realized from that, that ultimately the only place we are all headed is to love. So can I be that source of love in this lifetime? Mm. So that was, that's really what I, one of the strongest lessons I know about life. Yeah, that's uh, powerful and true to my heart uh, as I listen to you. Love, um, the second thing you know for sure? So uh, another thing I know is that, and I write about this in The Power of Miracle Mm -hmm. Thinking, 
that what we are actually going to create in our lives, no matter what we say we want to create, is what we insist upon creating. Mm. So I can look at anything in my life and I ask myself, is it a priority or an option? So if it's a priority, I will make it happen. I don't know how the necessarily the hows of how to make something happen, but I know that I will make it happen. And so when we have that level of insistence, that is what propels us to create and to actually bring into reality that which what is, is what we want. <laughs> Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Do you think that's connected to the purpose of um, a person's soul, spirit? Um, yes, yes, yes. Because what drives us? What is the passion that drives us? That sense when, the, when we have that sense of ins- insistence, I think people... You know, a lot of people struggle with, you know, what's my life purpose? Well, where is your, where's your passion? What do you love? Right. You know, start there. Yeah. You might be very much connected. Yes. And the third thing? The third thing, God, I I can make a whole list, but um, (laughs) yeah, um, I think the third thing is one, another thing that I say in um, the power of miracle thinking, I say that the universe will never give you a yes, but yes, I want this, but. Right. And so for me, I'll just give the example of years ago, you know, I, I, I really want a relationship. Oh, God, bring, you know, bring me that relationship, please bring me, bring me. I want it. I want it. Oh, wait, I, I don't I don't want to get my heart skewered like it's been hurt before. Yes, I want it. But yes, but yes, but. Mm-hmm. So whenever we have those yes, buts, we've got to get off our big fat butt. We have mm-hmm. to get off that butt if we want to create what it is we want. Right. And. I figured out how to do that. <laughs> mm. And it's by asking a question, which is, what is it I'm truly willing to allow? And if you ask yourself that question, again, these are self-inquiry inquiry questions. Yeah. Like, you know, what's the most loving thing I can do for me right now? But this question is a very gentle, simple truth. What is it I'm truly willing to allow? Right. And that will lead you in the direction of your dream. So, for example, in relationship, I said, okay, I'm willing to allow a a phone conversation with a new person and Mm -hmm. a dinner with a new person and maybe holding hands. You know, that was my little safe zone. So here I talk about, you know, chutzpah and taking risks, but there's also the gentle truth. And it's it's equally as powerful in moving us in the direction of our dreams. Right. Self-knowledge. Yeah. Yes. Wow. It has been a fun uh, I love um, listening to you talking and uh, insightful, uh, deep. Thank you so much, Randy. Um, where can we find more information about you, what you do, services, future projects? The easiest place is on my website, which is www.authoronestop.com authoronestop.com and the one is spelled out O-N-E authoronestop.com Great. Thank you so much again. You're very welcome. Bye for now, Randy. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Randy Pizer, please visit her website authoronestop.com to learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, 
and Aiden Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.